0: Welcome to episode eight of the BMA's podcast, where we'll be discussing the New Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Today, we're gonna to begin looking at a new book, The Gospel of Luke. As we start this book, we come to our third gospel. What makes this gospel different from the others?
1: Yeah, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels mm-hmm. because they give a very similar Telling and retelling of the events of Christ's birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Right. Uh, And yet, each of them come with their own uh, perspective and are writing for their own purposes. And Mm -hmm. so, we can sometimes want to just kind of harmonize everything and try to figure out, okay, we have... um, you know, some elements of the Sermon on the Mount over here and some that are over here. Let's read them together and let's kind of just kind of think through the the totality of all that is said. Mm -hmm. And yet when we do that, we miss kind of actually, okay, what is Luke saying in the way that Luke is saying it? Yeah. Right? And he begins his um, gospel very differently where he talks about the fact that he's taken time to study these things, right? He was not a firsthand witness of these things, but rather has gone through to be able to give an account to Theophilus who may have been a patron of Luke, um, may have been a, a Roman patron. Some have also said that he may have been a, um, a Jewish priest, mm. uh, and, and maybe he's making an argument there as well. So there are differences of, of opinions that are there. But clearly Luke is giving us a very thorough and a very clear account. And some of the things that make it unique are he emphasizes prayer mm-hmm. a great deal in the book. Uh, he emphasizes the place of women uh, in the book. Uh, He focuses on the poor, Uh, so just one for instance, we see that in Matthew's Gospel it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth, um, or the kingdom of God. Um, And in Luke's Gospel, it's blessed are the poor, Mm -hmm. without any qualification. Now, we should recognize that this certainly has an economic factor to it, However, we also know from the Old Testament that poor is those who are looking to God for all of their sustenance, for all of their health, for all of their hope. So it's not as to say, as some have said, well, God is just looking down upon the poor and seeking to bless the poor, end of story, Mm -hmm. as much as, no, there's a sense in which the poor are those who are trusting in God, Right, right? However, there is a way in which poverty in the Bible has provided a context for them to look to God. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes those who are most faithful are also those who are most impoverished. Right? uh, We talked a little bit about that last time. It's not a zero-sum game where it can say, okay, all the rich are bad Mm -hmm. and all the poor are good and vice versa. um, As much as to say there's a general sense that those who are totally dependent on God are are the poor and and vice versa in that case right so um so i think those are some of the things that we're going to see uh in there um i I would say one other thing is that there seems to be a strong priestly theme uh through the book of luke and we'll even see that as we look at some of these early chapters
0: i've heard people say that the bible isn't true because these three books don't say the exact same thing Mm. and what i've always said was if there's a basketball game Mm -hmm. on tv in the nba and ESPN is is reporting on the game, and ABC Sports is is reporting on the game. Even though they're reporting on the same game, Mm -hmm. they're not going to have all the same highlights. They're not going to say have all the same comments. Even though everything that both organizations may be saying are is true because they did happen in the game, that doesn't mean that one is less true than the other, or that makes one less true because they aren't saying the exact same thing about the same events. That's right. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and especially, I mean, so even with ESPN and ABC. They're generally, as we're watching them, speaking to an American audience or a Western audience, an English-speaking audience, Mm -hmm. right? Um, When we come to the scriptures, like Matthew may have even written his gospel, first of all, in in Hebrew, to Mm -hmm. Hebrews, to to the Jews who are there. So even the audiences that they are intending to write to is going to shape it a little bit differently. Right, yeah. right. And so, yeah, this is where we want to read the Bible on its own terms Mm -hmm. and to see, okay, why does... Matthew begin like he does, and Luke begin as he does, Mm -hmm. right? Why are they including? What are they not including? And some of those differences actually help us to understand the author's intent Mm -hmm. as we're looking at that, right? Again, we have, I mean, computers with endless, seemingly endless, space for, for words. Right, yeah. right, They didn't. Yeah. Right? So they had to be very selective with the words that they were choosing to include or not to include. And every author in the Bible is making choices about what they're including. So when a word is there, it's there for a purpose. Not mm-hmm. only because the Holy Spirit has inspired it, because, but also because the author has intended it. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at those words, we can say, okay, this word is missing here. And this word is added here in these two different Gospels. And by comparing and contrasting, it can actually help us to get a sense of why it's included or not.
0: Right. In Luke 1, we come to the birth stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. And in both cases, the angel Gabriel was sent to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. Why was this angel sent?
1: Yeah, I think simply to prepare the way, right? Mm -hmm. To give an announcement that that something was taking place uh, here. Right? So there's just a, uh, as Luke is, is writing in Luke 1, I mean, the two births of, of John the Baptist and Jesus are, are, are beginning an entirely new era in redemptive history, mm-hmm. right? So John the Baptist's role is going to be so important because he's preparing the way for this new covenant Lord to come, right? So they're fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. And as they do that, uh, we also know that angels are used as messengers uh, to explain God's purposes and what he's doing on the earth, Mm. right? So, in this case, the angel is giving clarity to say, okay, there's something unique about John the Baptist and something unique, obviously, about Jesus Christ and preparing the way uh, for these two figures uh, to be um, on the scene Mm -hmm. uh, so that we would pay attention to what's going on.
0: So, why is John the Baptist even needed? If the Gospels are about Jesus, what role does John play?
1: Yeah, again, um, we can so easily miss his purpose, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so um, when we see that John the Baptist comes, he is an Old Testament or an Old Covenant prophet. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Right? And he is the one who is greatest among women, Jesus will say, because he is the one who is in closest proximity. To the Messiah, Mm -hmm. right? And he is giving the greatest testimony to the Messiah as he's preparing the way for him. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that's unique about this is just again, and Luke's gospel does this in ways that others do not, is that when John the Baptist uh, comes into the storyline in Luke chapter 1, he comes as the son of Zechariah who is a priest in the line of Aaron, mm-hmm. right? So we see that he is there. So Gabriel comes to Zechariah in the temple as he's offering incense. Right. And as he's doing that, we see that, okay, this priestly role is preparing the way uh, for a greater something, mm-hmm. right? That Jesus is going to be greater than the son of this priest, and really, even by the end of the first chapter, we see that John the Baptist, who was in the place of glory, uh, or I should say his father was in the place of glory there serving in the temple, now his son is out in the wilderness, mm-hmm. right? And Jesus comes in Bethlehem, and where does he end up in chapter 2? He ends up in the temple. Mm-hmm. It's like this role reversal, right. right? That the priesthood of the Old Testament is going away, and the priesthood of the New Covenant is coming into being. Yeah, that's good. And John the Baptist has this, this role of preparing the way for Jesus to take this, uh, this um, changing of the guard, uh, if you will. Uh, and so by knowing more of John the Baptist's ministry, it helps us to understand who Jesus is, and certainly we may see some of this when we look at the baptism of Jesus himself.
0: In reading Luke 2, I was struck by something I had not noticed before, So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Luke 2, 10 through 14. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David's Savior, who is the Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Verse 13 says that suddenly there was a multitude um, praising God. I had never noticed um before this this particular scripture, where there was a multitude praising God, so my question is: Are there other places in the Bible where it talks about a multitude of angels or heavenly beings that were worshiping? And can we take anything away from this as to how we should worship?
1: Um, yeah, I mean. The two places that come to mind would be Isaiah chapter six, mm-hmm. Revelation four and five, mm-hmm. right, where we see Isaiah coming into the throne room of God, and there are angelic beings who are around the throne, the cherubim who are worshiping uh, the Lord, right, right, and and in that sense, we don't see that being revealed to men like the shepherds there. Um, in in Bethlehem or outside of Bethlehem but we do see a man who is permitted entrance into the heavenly place like this is the kind of praise and worship that is going on around the throne of God mm-hmm. and something very similar is taking place when John is given his vision as well as he sees both the God and his glory and the Lamb and his glory also receiving worship at that place right right so I think that what we're seeing here is again, a testimony to the way in which God is working to bring a a reunification between what was divided in the beginning. Mm. Right? In other words, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the garden. And as they were cast out of the garden, they lost their place to come and to dwell in His presence. Right. right? And yet, the storyline of the whole Bible is how sinful humanity can come back into the presence of God. And how God is bringing people back in so that... We can worship Him, so mm-hmm. that uh, we can be with angelic beings, perhaps who, who are worshiping Him as mm-hmm. well. And we certainly see that in the places like Isaiah six and Revelation four and five. With respect to just our own worship today, I think probably Hebrews is the most helpful place to see this. Yeah, right. Where Hebrews twelve speaks of the fact that God has invited um, the the saints of the firstborn, the church of the firstborn, to come and to dwell around His throne and and to worship there and that there are those, those Old Testament saints who are doing that now with the angelic beings, like this is the vision of Hebrews 12, and yet we too join in that. So it says that we have not come to Mount Sinai, Mm -hmm. we have come to Mount Zion. And it's not that we will in the future come to Mount Zion, but rather we have because of Christ's resurrection, because of His ascension, because of the Spirit that is given to us, so that when we gather together, uh, Sunday by Sunday, in the name of Christ, around the gospel, worshiping the Lord. I think what that does, if I specify this, is somehow to trigger in heaven praise that is given to God. Right, as this body of believers is rightly worshiping in spirit and in truth, it stirs up the angels to do the same. Now that sounds strange. Well, we have the passages that speak that the angels in heaven rejoice mm. whenever one believer repents and is saved. Yeah. Right. So, if that is true, if the salvation of a soul triggers praise and worship around the throne of God, then when the redeemed of the Lord on earth are rightly proclaiming the gospel, rightly believing the gospel, rightly worshiping the God because of the gospel, it seems that that triggers praise in heaven mm-hmm. because of what's going on, on earth, and it reminds us there is not this kind of hermetically sealed division between heaven and earth, right. but rather what God is doing from the throne room of heaven is having effect on the earth, and all that is going on on the earth is carrying out his plans and purposes, so that one day the kingdom of God will become the kingdom of men, mm-hmm. and the kingdom of God's people on the earth will be joined with God in heaven himself, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and right. all that was separated will be rightly joined together.
0: In Luke 3, John the Baptist was preaching about a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Technically, even though we are reading from the New Testament, um, at this time they were still under the old covenant. Was John the Baptist preaching a precursor to the New Testament that was going to be established in Jesus?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we often, as soon as we step into the New Testament, think that we are in the New Covenant. Mm -hmm. And obviously, testament is a word that means covenant in Latin. So, I mean, there's something to that. Right. Uh, However... Most of the Gospels are still under the Old Covenant. Jesus was born under the Old Covenant law. He perfectly obeyed the Old Covenant system. Mm -hmm. And until His cross, His resurrection, and the outpouring of the Spirit, there hasn't been this transfer from Old to New Covenant. And in fact, even the book of Acts, I would say, is this transitional period Mm -hmm. where the temple in Jerusalem still stands, but it's going away. And the new temple that Jesus is the cornerstone of is being built with Jew and Gentile, um, and in that sense, the the new is coming into being. Right. Right. And so, I do think it's helpful to see that, especially again, as we read through the Gospels, there are certain movements that we have to make, or to say it differently, we have to uh, interpret anything in the Gospels through the finished work of Christ's death and resurrection. His ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit. And there may be some places where, we saw this last week in Mark 13, where Jesus is speaking directly to His disciples and is not speaking directly to us. right? So He's speaking for us, the Gospels are for us, but in some of these places it may be applied more directly to what's going on in the day of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So we just have to be aware as we're, we're reading the text to see how that moves in that way.
0: In Luke 4, um, 42 through 44, in those verses, it talks about Jesus preaching in the temples. Would it have been unusual for someone other than the priest at the time, such as the Sadducees or Pharisees, to be preaching in the temples or the synagogues?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was their space to be the teachers, right? The priests were the teachers in Israel. and you know, Sometimes we think of the prophets as those who are and the teachers, but really it was the priests who had the role of, they were given the covenant, mm-hmm. the knowledge of the Lord was on their lips and they were to continue to communicate that. The prophets came in when the priests failed right to, um, to condemn uh, the false teaching of the priests mm. and to call them back to the covenant, that's what the prophets were doing. So certainly, those who are serving as priests in Jerusalem, and those who are the elders and the Pharisees and Sadducees in uh, different synagogues throughout Jerusalem or throughout uh, Israel, these are the ones who are to be teaching. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he is teaching, he's taking on a priestly role. Yeah. Right. He is again, um, you know, teaching what the law said, but he's showing himself to be a better teacher because when he comes and teaches, he teaches with power, mm-hmm. right? Not only does he able to say this is what the law says, but for the leper, he's able to cleanse the leper, mm-hmm. right? For those that he's teaching, he's also able to heal, right? So what the priest couldn't do, he's able to do. Mm-hmm.
0: In Luke 5 in verses 33 through 35, you know, it talks about fasting. Let me go ahead and read that. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So generally when I'm fasting, I'm I'm seeking an answer or clarity mm-hmm. um, from God. Uh, but if Jesus were with me and I could just ask him the, the, the question directly yeah. and he could answer me, mm-hmm. I've always thought there probably wouldn't be a need to fast mm-hmm. because I can get the answer directly yeah, from yeah. them. So I always thought that in, in these verses, that's what um, Jesus was saying. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think what we see here is the question just comes about the, the disciples, mm-hmm. right? Why don't they fast? Right. Well, if they were to be fasting, it would be saying that we are mourning the loss of the presence of God, mm. right? But the presence of God has come. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. Therefore, it's a time of celebration. Right, right yeah. Because God is there with them. Like what all of the, the people in Israel were desiring at this time, whether it was... Um, the Pharisees who thought that they could bring the kingdom of God through their law-keeping, or whether it was the Sadducees who thought through their political maneuvers they could bring in the kingdom of God, or whether it was the zealots who were willing to kill people, right, in order to to, to purify the land, or whether it was the Essenes, right, who are the Qumran community who left everything behind to go and to purify themselves to bring the kingdom of God. All of Israel is wanting the kingdom of God to come, Mm -hmm. right? And what happens? Jesus comes. And if his disciples are mourning or if they're fasting, it's as to say the kingdom is not here. The right. king has not come. But because they're celebrating with him, it is testifying no, that the king has come. Mm. So for us today, and this is just what I just said, like we have to interpret Like the king has come. right? right? Yeah. So when we fast, uh, we don't fast as though we don't have the presence of God because we do. Right. Right? The promise is that the Spirit is with us. Mm -hmm. and that I will be with you to the end of the age. And yet, we can mourn over the fact that there is sin in our lives. Mm. There is sin in our church. There is sin in the world. So, fasting is an appropriate expression of that, but it is New Covenant fasting that is distinct from Old Covenant fasting, Mm. right? Because we do have the Spirit uh, with us today. So, I think today it's perhaps less about just kind of getting an answer from the Lord and just saying, I want more of God, right? I want to... Lord, I want you so much. I'm putting aside food. I'm putting aside television. I'm putting aside my phone. I'm putting aside any number of these things to distract me from the Lord to say, I want more of God, mm. which of course, in a time of decision-making is so important. Right. Right. Because the decisions that we make should be an overflow of our relationship with God. And sometimes we just need to say, I need more of God to have a perception to be able to make a wise decision.
0: And just learn something new. <laughs> In Luke 6, we find another Sermon on the Mount. How should we relate Luke 6 to Matthew 5-7? through seven?
1: Yeah, so in Luke 6, we have a number of things that are very familiar to us from Matthew 5-7. through seven. Mm-hmm. Um, But the way it's described in Luke 6, verse 17, uh, is that he came down with them and stood on a level place, and a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed by their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And He lifted up his eyes on the disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So you can mm-hmm. see how these Beatitudes are beginning what looks like another Sermon on the Mount, and yet this is often called the Sermon on the Plain, right? Right, which teaches us something perhaps of the kind of teaching that Jesus did that it's likely that many of the things that we find in the Gospels, Jesus said multiple times. Maybe He said it different ways. Mm-hmm. Right? But here we see that there are teachings that are very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but they're delivered in a different place on the plain. Right? And so, again, there's some slight variations here. Instead of um, 8 or 9 or 10, depends on how you count them, uh, Beatitudes in Matthew 5, uh, we have four Beatitudes that are here. Mm-hmm. And then right after that, verses 24 through 26, we have four of these woe statements. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And in Matthew's Gospel, the woe statements show up in Matthew 23. Mm-hmm. Right, So I think the big thing to see, is that we need to read each of these Gospels on their own terms, Mm. right? And these take a a place that is there, and we shouldn't try to smash them into just, okay, Matthew 5-7, through Luke 6, bring them together. What's similar, what's different? um, As much as they, how is this being worked out in the storyline that Luke is giving to us uh, in the Gospel?
0: In the Sermon on the Plain, we find four Beatitudes. Are those Beatitudes applicable to us today?
1: Yes, they are, uh, and just remembering who he's speaking to. He's talking to his disciples in the midst of the crowd. Mm-hmm. Right? So he is saying to them, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you are for you shall be satisfied. So he's speaking a, a word of blessing or making an identification of those who are blessed because of their place in the New Covenant, the Kingdom that He is proclaiming. And these disciples are now in. Mm -hmm. Right? So, these things are not um, means by which today, disciples of Jesus are going to earn their way into the Kingdom. You will be blessed if you do this, is the wrong way to read this. As much as to say that those who have received the Gospel, who have followed Christ, like His disciples, these things are now true of you. Mm -hmm. Right? So continue to walk in these ways. Right? So this is why I think both the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount begin with the Beatitudes, because it's not, do this and you will be blessed, but rather, as you have trusted in the gospel, you are blessed, so mm. now walk in that way.
0: Wow. Luke 6 also includes the selection of 12 disciples. What do we learn from this selection?
1: Yeah, so there are 12 disciples here. One of the things that we see is that Jesus um, has gone and, and prayed, uh, for them. So, uh, chapter 6, verse 12, "...in these days he went out to a mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and then he comes back and he, he names twelve disciples." Mm-hmm. Right, So, I think strikingly, it is prayer that leads to this revelation of who these men are that he should choose. Uh, Twelve is a significant number. It's not accidental. It's not five. It's not fifteen. It's not fifty. But it's the same number as the twelve tribes of Israel, which come from the twelve sons. Mm -hmm. So it seems as though that he is, in some ways, um, reconstituting a true Israel. Because Israel, as a nation, and we see this with the leaders of the nation who are leading the nation astray, has broken the covenant. They've abandoned God. There's a need for a new covenant because the nation and its leaders have gone astray, and so Jesus comes to to reestablish His people, and He does so with these uh, with these twelve. Uh, what's interesting is that He selects men uh, who are not uh, the Pharisees, mm-hmm. who are not the the upper echelon, the priests of the day, right. but simple uh, fishermen and uh, tax collector. A zealot? This is striking, right? Right. Yeah. Because the zealots. And the tax collectors would have been at odds with one another mm-hmm. right so in the 12 itself you have kind of competing tensions that are there right that the lord is now bringing together to bring unity to this foundation it's like how encouraging that is how instructive that is for the mm. church today that the lord continues to build his church with people who would be at odds with one another based on the culture around them mm-hmm. and yet in communion with Christ and in unity with Christ, they become brothers and sisters in this new covenant community.
0: Uh, so we see that Jesus chose 12 men, but in Luke 8, we find three women following Jesus and even providing for Jesus. Here's what Luke 8, 1-3 through 3 says. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, two, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, three and Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means." What should we think about this?
1: Yeah, so again, Scripture is so balanced mm. in the way that it presents just the household of God. Right? right. So we're talking a lot about this in First Timothy right now. You know, we'll be starting chapter 2 in a week or so, and we'll begin to see how God has roles for men and women in the church. And what we see is that there is a robust ministry for men and women who follow Jesus. Right? So Jesus chooses the 12 to be the foundation stones uh, of the church. Those who are going to lead the church are the the men who are the apostles. Uh, This will kind of uh, dovetail with what is seen with um, the elders or the pastors and the The qualifications for those leaders in the church is to be men who are teaching and leading in the church. And yet, even here, we see that women are also Incredibly important for the ministry of Jesus. And they're actually providing uh, for the ministry there. So earlier we talked about, Blessed are you who are poor, Mm -hmm. right? For yours is the kingdom of God. But here's the women who have some incredible means, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not as though that Jesus is just calling people who are poor to find salvation, but these are some rich women in the church, or, you know, the followers of Jesus at this point, um, who are important to play a part in the ministry going forward. Uh, And so I think it's just a reminder to us that a healthy understanding of men and women in the church is there is a robust ministry for both, uh, even as there is a distinct place for men to be those who are teaching in the church, but service in the church is for men and women. And in this case, you have some leading women who are there uh, providing and supporting uh, what is going on in the ministry of Jesus.
0: So we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else that we should talk about, in Luke?
1: Um, Yeah, again, one of the things that we see in Luke's Gospel, this is true for all the Gospels, is the way that the New Testament is constantly quoting the Old Testament, Mm. right? And the way that we understand so much of what Luke is saying is by seeing how he's quoting from the Old Testament and applying it to Jesus, right? So the Gospels do a wonderful job of having a a Christ-centered approach to the The Old Testament, right? showing the way in which... Uh, these Old Testament passages are fulfilled in Christ. So just maybe one more thing to, to highlight, and this goes back to Luke chapter 2. Uh, and it's something I just saw reading uh, these scriptures a few weeks ago. Uh, and that is, when Jesus is presented at the temple, mm-hmm. right, this would have been something that every single male in Israel would have had to go through, where a five-shekel, silver-shekel um, redemption price was given for every firstborn. Right, this goes back into the Old Testament when the Levites replaced the firstborn sons, and that uh, the firstborn sons, if they weren't replaced by a Levite, were replaced by a five shekel offering. Oh, right? Okay. Jesus comes, and when he comes, he's presented at the temple, but he does not give a five shekel offering to redeem Jesus. Mm. Right? Why is that? Right. Because he's coming to redeem. That's right. Right? He doesn't need to be redeemed because he's the redeemer. And we see this in Luke 2, verse 22. It says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This would be on the eighth day. Verse 23, and as it is written, in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Most of our cross-references will take us back to Exodus 13 and to the places where it talks about the firstborn son being redeemed. But what is included here is this language of called holy to the Lord. Mm. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from Exodus 28. It comes from the language that is given to the priest. The priest is the one who has holy to the Lord inscribed on his forehead, Mm -hmm. right? So now Jesus comes, he is the firstborn son, he doesn't need to be redeemed, but rather he's going to be the firstborn priest who's going to redeem his people, right? And so the more that we see how the New Testament is picking up these Old Testament verses, Old Testament ideas, and applying them to Jesus, the better we'll understand what Luke's message is for us today.
0: Uh, This concludes our discussion of the New Testament portion of our reading plan. As you follow along with your reading plan, if you come up with any questions that you would like me to ask David, please send them to viaemmaus at obc.org. You may hear a response on an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a
1: podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.